Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Good morning, beautiful people. Um, so I have one of the privileges of reading the Bible today. Um, so as you can see on screen, it's 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and sent out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming on you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into the hands, oh, into my hands, sorry, in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged myself, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I am, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name for my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up into the stronghold.
Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who does speak to us. And we pray now, Lord, as we uh, unpack 1 Samuel, this uh, Old Testament book, uh, you'll help us to hear, that, uh, hear about who you are, the, the, the character of God and how that doesn't change. And how, Lord, uh, you've, you, you're, a pers- you're a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. And may we uh, live uh, and be convicted of that. May we be a people of mercy shaped by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was on a website the other day, and it was one of those websites that looks like a meme website. You know, they tell you um, 10 things about some, something that happened or whatever. Uh, this title was 30 times entitled customers left ridiculously absurd reviews for not getting their way. I, I thought it was really interesting, so I, I clicked on it uh, to have a read. And here's a couple. Here's, here's, a, here's a couple of funny ones. The first one uh, is this one, a review on an apartment that caught my eye. They told me the rent was 900 but when I offered $800, they persisted on telling me that it was 900 One star. Here's another one. This one's, I think, uh, it's from America because it's about uh, uh, turkey, you know, Thanksgiving. Giving your church a one-star review for giving you a free turkey. I like this one. What a disappointing disaster. Waiting two hours extra early, only the fourth car in line for the free turkey and fixings this year. We did not get a pie. We did not receive any bread or anything for for a salad like your photos in the local paper showed. Depressing beyond belief. We get it. They're just volunteers. But come on, a smallish turkey with an odd odor, no dessert of any kind, and absolutely nothing from the free coffee and breakfast tables. You ruined our Thanksgiving again. Man... To take the time to write that, like oh, oh they've been they've been hurt, haven't they? Like there's there's something going on there. So it's a bit sad. You know, these one star reviews that they're just ridiculous. People that are just very entitled in many ways. You know, I demand a eight hundred dollar you know rental. I, I I demand more than just a free turkey if I'm lining up and waiting line for something free. I, I think that's really uh, sad, isn't it? Uh, if you want more of that, I got a friend called Hi Josh. Uh, he's on Instagram and stuff. You can watch his stuff. He's he's viral. Uh, he makes he makes videos, funny videos, playing characters, reading out Google reviews. They're just ridiculous. It's funny, but I also think it's actually a bit intimidating. A bit intimidating because you could, I know people are on social media. You could have a huge following on social media. You're a celebrity, a, a social media influencer. And you could say something co- controversial about an issue. You could say something about your faith even and just get cancelled. You could run a small business that gives great customer service and food, but one customer who feels a bit entitled doesn't get what they want, one star. A scathing review. I'm nervous to even say this right now, but Providence, our church, oh, we're online. We have an online presence. And at times, sometimes I feel a little bit vulnerable. Like one day someone will just come through our doors and not like something I say or not like that we, we serve instant coffee here and then boom, one star review, you know? <laughs> And you can't do anything about that. It makes me nervous. You know, we're out there online. And, but that's the internet for you. Uh, I'm hoping if that ever happens, you guys will all just get on and just put five-star reviews and drown out that one star. But let's consider, right? Let's consider, like, this is how people respond sometimes when they feel wronged. They want the whole world to know. That's, you know, the one-star reviews. But let's consider how we respond how do you respond when you felt wronged? And not just in the entitled sense, okay? Not the, just those examples. When someone has had said something hurtful to you, when they've mistreated you, when you were taken advantage of, how do you respond? I'm guessing if you're anything like me, you, you'd, you'd really fester on it. You'd be internally raging. You'd be, you'd be thinking, strategizing, how do you retaliate? Get some sort of payback on that person who hurt you. Like that. You know that movie John Wick? Like he just gets revenge because someone killed his dog. It's the whole movie is about getting revenge. Like are you just like that? <laughs> Anything like that? I'm assuming we'd all want justice, wouldn't we? 
Uh, some of us will we'll go out and we'll, we'll just gossip to all our friends about it because we're hurt. Some of us, we might just sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened, but we'll be bottling it up and it'll just explode one day. We all want justice. We want it to come swiftly. Sometimes that looks like one-style Google reviews, but maybe sometimes it's actually making that other person feel that pain that they've caused you. We let our anger and our emotions guide us at times. But what if we could consider an alternative? What would it look like for us to go in a different direction? What would it look like for us to be a people of mercy, even when we've been wronged? To be a people of peace instead of conflict, a person who doesn't avoid the issue, sweeps it under the rug, but addresses it with an understanding and a patience and, and mercy. Today's story about David and Saul actually points us in that direction, revealing to us the, the character of God, his mercy and forgiveness for us, and how that shapes us in the way that we treat others as well. Now, it's important to get a bit of uh, understanding of the context to why this story is here in chapter 24. Last week, uh, we looked at the story of David and Goliath. That was in chapter 17. So we're skipping a few chapters. Hopefully, you guys can read that in your own time. Uh, we read about how... Uh, um, there was a giant called Goliath and David went up against him and David was victorious. It was, should have been the king of Israel, Saul, that defeated him, but it wasn't. It was this young shepherd boy, right? Uh, what happens in the chapters between 17 and 24, though, a lot happens. Uh, from chapter 18, da David continues to go out into battle, leading the armies of Israel to, to victory over the Philistines, the enemies, uh, and he keeps finding success. Now, there's not, only, uh, there's not only that, but there's a great bromance that happens between Jonathan, his Saul's son, and David. They get along really well. They become good friends. Um, but what happens is we see King Saul becoming really jealous of this guy, David. I'm going to read you a small section from chapter 18 that we skipped over just to get a bit of context. 18, verse 6 to 9. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So you can hear this sort of jealousy coming through with Saul. Uh, if you keep reading too, you'll hear that there's a time where he tries to throw a spear at Saul, uh, David while they're hanging out in the palace. So he's actually attempting to, to kill David uh, many times here. Uh, and, and, um, and he gets increasingly paranoid. He thinks everyone's on David's side. So he starts going out with his men to search for David in an effort to kill him. And David has to go out into exile somewhere in the wilderness. And there's just chapters of that. A bit, that cat, uh, cat and mouse chase happening between Saul and David, uh, which continues on really to chapter 26, which I'll make reference to as well. So let's, let's plant ourselves in chapter 24, which is what we read today together. Uh, we find out that Saul's on the run. He's out in the wilderness. We discover he's hiding out in this desert of Engedi, it's called, uh, and Saul finds out about that. That's the setting. Okay, we all know where we're at now. He goes with 3,000 of his men uh, to hunt down David. And while he's searching around for David, we're told that Nature calls. So the big question uh, is, was it a tinkle or was it something else? We don't know. We, we don't have that information. I'm guessing it's a number two. It always takes a bit longer to drop the kids off at the pool. But we're told uh, David is in the cave as well with uh, Saul. Saul's there doing his business. Uh, and what are the chances? They're in the same cave. Now, paraphrasing here, David's men, they're, they're whispering to him, let's, let's do something here. Let's, uh, let's be preemptive. Let's, let's strike him first while he's unguarded, while his pants are down, essentially. Let's, you know, this is the day God has handed his enemies over to you. And now, a quick note, God did say that 
you know, I will deliver the enemies into your hands. Um, but he wasn't referring to Saul. He was referring to the Philistines, Israel's enemies. David's men has taken that, have taken that out of context a little bit here. Um, but Saul, yeah, an enemy. He's chasing after David. Uh, David doesn't see it that way. Look what he does. He creeps up behind Saul and he cuts off a corner of his robe. Uh, there is no dagger through the heart, no chopping off of heads, no spear through the heart. Saul is, 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 is busy here, probably scrolling his Instagram while he's, you know, to notice that the corner of his robe is being quietly cut off. Saul has no idea. But David, he doesn't. And then all of a sudden, this heavy guilt instantly fills his heart. Verse 5, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. It's a bit odd, isn't it? It's a bit odd. Imagine being in David's shoes for a minute. You've been chased all around Israel by Saul to the point where you're now hunting and you're, you're, you're hiding out in the wilderness with your men. Uh, in the last chapter, uh, chapter 23, you've just rescued a city called Caelor from the Philistines and they too were about to turn on you to sell you out and hand you over to Saul. That's, that's what happens in chapter 23. You literally just save them. And so you've been betrayed by those people as well. Your men, I imagine, are tired and hungry, months of being on the run. Uh, you've been through so much trauma, unsure whether you're going to get killed today, and you're feeling guilty? You're feeling guilty by cutting off, from, from cutting off a bit of the king's robe? I'm not sure feeling guilty is the right word there. I'm sure we'd all want justice, wouldn't we? You see, David has done nothing wrong. He's been busy fighting the enemy, fighting the Philistines, saving Israel. He should, rightfully, strike Saul. So that Saul will no longer be a problem, no longer a threat to him. And so David can take the throne and properly lead the nation, right? What's this stuff about feeling guilty then? Well, what we see is actually an insight into David's heart here. His heart for God, his awareness of his sin even. What David has done is far more rebellious than what we might think. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to jump around a bit today. 1 Samuel 15, I've got this on the screen. It says, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught, this is um, Samuel, the prophet, Saul caught, ho caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you, right? So that's uh, Samuel's robe. What we also uh, read later on, uh, and I don't have this on the screen, but Jonathan himself, he gives his robe, Jonathan, the son of Saul, gives his robe over to David. So there's something symbolic going on here with the robe. It's symbolic of the kingdom being handed over to the next. So when David's cutting off this corner of the robe, he feels really guilty. It's a symbolic of him seizing the kingdom for himself. You can understand that within mind, right? Like if we understand that picture, and we might not understand it as, as people today reading this and, and like, well, what's this? Well, it's not, it doesn't sound like a big deal at all. But for David, it's a huge deal. He feels guilty. He feels bad. He didn't, need to, he, he didn't kill Saul here, but it, it's symbolic of something far greater that we just, it's hard for us to comprehend. Recognizing that Saul is God's anointed, he says. And that, there's a sacred dignity to that. David gets that. So he feels bad here for, for tearing off the corner of the robe. So the story goes from verse 8. He goes out, he, he bows down before Saul, face to the ground, confesses his actions and pleads innocence. Uh, why do you listen to men who say, David is trying to harm you? Look, who, look, I could have killed you today, but I spared you. David says, uh, David sees Saul still as God's anointed, his appointed king. He even calls him father. Verse, I think I've got verse 11 on the screen so we can follow along what's going on. So see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting uh, me down to take my life. 
know, what we've seen here is really an act of mercy on David's behalf, haven't we? Uh, David has done no wrong, but Saul has been hunting him down to kill him. Yet David still shows mercy. Mercy to a man who deserves payback. And isn't that what mercy is? Mercy is when you, you don't give someone something they deserve. Saul deserves a spear through his chest. But David, and, and David, he's got the perfect opportunity, but he doesn't take it. He chooses to not act upon revenge, but act with mercy. In fact, we skip over a, a couple of more chapters and, and a similar, similar things happen in, in chapter 26. It's a very similar story, so I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm just going to give you a quick summary. In chapter 26, uh, Saul is chasing David again. And Saul's camped outside. He's, he's uh, camped nearby where David is. David knows where he is. And David and his men, uh, one of his men, sneak into the camp. And the opportunity is there again. Saul's asleep. There's a spear right next to him. He could have killed Saul in his sleep with his own spear. But instead what David does is he takes a spear. And the next morning he confronts Saul again. And he says to Saul, hey, I could have killed you last night. I had the chance. I chose not to. Same sort of story happening again in chapter 26. Mercy upon mercy, David has the opportunity to deliver justice and judgment, but chose him mercy. Here's what's so interesting, I think, about what David has done. By showing mercy, he's risking his own life. By showing mercy, he's risking the life of his men as well. He's put himself in this position of vulnerability, giving away his location to Saul by confronting Saul. Any second, Saul could just say, Let's attack David now. Let's kill him now. Let's get rid of him now. But more importantly, by, by showing mercy, what has David done? What has he done with all the hurt and pain that Saul has caused? He's not only taking a risk, not only taking a risk by sparing his life, he's cancelling the debt, isn't he? He's absorbing the cost. There is no payback, no revenge, no eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. David spares Saul's life again and again. Uh, I think we need to s stop and appreciate and understand the, the gravity of what mercy means. That when we show mercy, there is a, a level of forgiveness, isn't there? Well, when a, a wrong is done, we, we naturally default to wanting justice. When wrong is done against us, we want payback. Wrongs to be made right. That, that sense of justice is in our bones. But mercy? Mercy is risky. Mercy means you're left vulnerable. When mercy is shown, the one paying for it is the one who's absorbing the hurt and the pain done by that wrong. It's why forgiveness and mercy is so hard, isn't it? Because you have to go through the healing process and be the one who has to pay for the hurt that someone else has done to you. It's not fair. Mercy is so hard to do well. It's interesting because here's the thing about mercy. We all want judgment, right? We all want judge judgment and justice performed when we've been wronged. But when we've wronged someone else, we're begging for mercy. We're begging for forgiveness, aren't we? Uh, it's generally true, isn't it? Everyone wants justice until justice comes to them. Here's the thing with David's story. He cares about justice, but he's not the one who will enact justice. That's not for him to decide. That's for God. In verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me. I think I've got it on the screen as well. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And again in verse 15, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Here's the thing. D David has a firm conviction in the God of justice who will pass judgment and will right all the wrongs. That's not for David to do. David shows mercy. 
And he's to be patient that in God's timing, God will bring that justice. Patient, trusting God, showing mercy, showing forgiveness. That's what faithfulness requires. And so at the end of the story in chapter 26, verse 23, he actually says that. He says, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. David's faithfulness looks like this. Patience and mercy. Forgiveness. Now imagine with me for a second if David did kill Saul. What kind of king would that make David? If he laid a hand against the anointed one. If he took matters into his own hands. One that doesn't wait patiently on God to direct and lead him. But one that is self-righteous and cruel and vengeful. If David were to kill Saul, David would just be the next Saul. A self-righteous, unfaithful king. Yet while this might be how David has acted, David isn't perfect, is he? David is merciful in these moments with Saul, but there's this chapter in between 24 and 26, chapter 25, where David loses his cool. Again, I don't have time to read it. I, I want to encourage you to read in your own time. But it's a story about a man called Nabal and his faithful wife, Abigail. And long story short, Nabal, he's a bit of a knob, and he just disrespects David and his men. He really disrespects David. David loses his cool. He gets enraged, his fury. He wants vengeance, cold-blooded. He commands his men to storm Nabal's estate and kill all the men there for Nabal's disrespect. And his wife, Abigail, she hears about it. And she prepares all these offerings and, and goes to David and pleads to David to show mercy. She begs for mercy. She, in her faithfulness, saves Nabal and his men from being slaughtered because David grants mercy there. You see, that story is squashed between 25 and 26. Two very similar stories about David's mercy for Saul, but it shows us that David himself is still a work in progress. He's not perfect. While he's a great king, he has his flaws, he has his imperfections. His mercy is going to always be shaped by his own emotions, his own sin. Friends, we need an even greater king than David. We need Jesus. A king that won't fail us, who will show mercy upon mercy, Upon mercy. Because the truth is we've all done wrong, haven't we? Think about where we stand in the whole story. When we stand before God, none of us are innocent, me included. We've all got this sin innate in our humanity. Uh, if you're not a Christian here today, that just means that we've all got a, a relationship issue with God. We've, at times, we've rejected Him. We've disrespected Him. We've turned away from Him. We haven't acknowledged Him. We've wronged Him. The sin that's expressed in our anger or our impatience or our selfishness or our greed or our pride, they're symptoms of the sin where we've distanced ourselves from God. And before we even uh, start to think about others around us and how we treat others, or when we've been wronged, we need to first see how we've wronged the God of the universe. We're all guilty. My sin put Jesus on the cross. My hand was against the anointed one. We're the ones who deserve justice and judgment. We deserve to be exiled out of God's presence. And all the good that comes from, from Him, that's what judgment looks like. And that's what eternal judgment will look like. Because we've wronged God. But God gave us a greater king than David. One of David's own descendants, He gave us Jesus. Jesus who was a king that laid down His life and took the judgment that was reserved for us. Humanity's sin poured out upon Him so that He, so he experienced the judgment He doesn't deserve. So we could receive the mercy that we don't deserve. Jesus showed us mercy. And he absorbed the pain and the hurt. He received God's wrath so that you and I could be forgiven.
That's, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel message of Jesus. The picture of the mercy of David really is just a snapshot of the greater king God has placed on the throne. Our King Jesus who laid down his life for us. If you go to the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, 23-24, it says this, When they hurled their insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus himself, he stepped in so we could receive mercy. Justice was done. He didn't retaliate. If you're not a believer here today, that mercy has been extended to you too. You can stand before God and have your sin forgiven, your, 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 your sin redeemed. Mercy and grace offered to you through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Like Abigail, it begins with asking and begging for mercy and putting your trust in Jesus that he will show you mercy as he does through his death. For those of us who are believers, the, the original question remains, how will you respond when we've been wronged by others? Now, I'm not talking about someone who has done some sort of criminal activity, okay? Like, if that happens to you, yeah, call the police. There's a, there's a system for that. But when you've been disrespected, when you've been mistreated, perhaps, taken advantage of, someone's just been rude to you, you've been wronged by them, there's this nasty conflict and beef, surely, surely we've experienced that in our lives at times. Surely we've seen it around us family members or friends who don't talk to each other anymore, who don't like being around each other anymore because of something that has happened in the past. I, know, I have people in my life who in the past have hurt me or they've felt hurt by me. Relationship, the relationship hasn't been the same since. It's hard. How do we as people of, of mercy and forgiveness, how do we treat others when we've been wronged? There's some steps I think uh, will be helpful and I want to just suggest these. The first one is start with the mercy of God in your life. The times you've, been, you've mistreated God and done wrong before Him. See your sin. Know your sin. Bring it before God. Find His forgiveness. See His mercy. See how He sees you and, and, and offers forgiveness through the amazing grace that we have in Christ. I think that's the first step. We need to stand before God and, and see ourselves as He sees us. Forgiven sinners. But secondly, when we see how we've been forgiven much, we can then extend that mercy to others who have wronged us. There's a parable in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, it's in Matthew 28. He teaches his disciples about a master who forgives debt to one of his servants. There's this big debt, this master forgives a servant, you're forgiven, um, and he shows mercy on the servant. The servant then goes out, and then someone else owes this servant money, so he, he starts choking him and abusing him and says, give me back my money, and he assaults him, throws him into jail. The master finds out about it. The master pulls him up. I've got this on the screen, it's from chapter 18, Matthew uh, do I have it on screen? I might not. It just is one verse. It says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? That's what he says. The master's shown mercy to the servant, but he goes out and he sh doesn't show mercy to the people who owe him money. There's something there, right? Well, for us, see God's mercy for you. See how that extends to others. Uh, in the case of conflicts, it's always tricky, isn't it? Because there, there might be two people at fault, the two parties at fault. Uh, sometimes we just need to own our mistakes. Come before the other person humbled. Because we know the forgiveness of Christ already. We can own our mistakes at least, what we're in control of. Not hold on to the shame and think less of ourselves. We can accept our imperfections. We can move to the other person then in grace and understanding, apologizing if we need to, and extending forgiveness to them too. You know, forgiveness is such a hard thing. I, I struggle with forgiveness all the time. How do we, what does it practically look like? Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, um, a pastor, he's, he, he's passed away, the late Tim Keller, right? One of my heroes. He says this about forgiveness. Forgiveness looks like a commitment 
not to bring up what not to bring up that wrong against them to punish them, a commitment not to bring up the wrong against them to punish them, not to bring it up to other people hoping they'll punish them, and not bring it up to yourself hoping someone else will punish them, right? So you don't want to, you, you need to, what forgiveness looks like is, is refraining from nursing that resentment. Now every time you refrain, guess what? It's going to hurt. Someone has to absorb the hurt that's been done. When you forgive, it's going to hurt. When you show mercy, it's going to hurt. But when we do that, aren't we expressing our faithfulness and trust in God? Aren't we expressing to the one, uh, to the, to the one that's forgiven that you and I, we, we know a God who is our great king and has shown mercy to us. And we're extending that to others. We need that mercy. They need that mercy. We want our friends and family and our colleagues and the stranger on the street to know and receive that mercy too. Let's be a people of mercy. And in doing so, are people of faith, are people who trust God. Here's my third suggestion. We can show mercy when we trust the God will, that, that will judge justly. In Romans 12, 17, this is the last one I have for you guys today. Um, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, forgiveness and mercy, it's not giving up justice, but it's giving up vengeance in place, returning evil with good. Avenging the wrong, that's God's job. For us, when wrong has been committed to us, we walk in faithfulness. Our God is, is much bigger than all that. All we are called to do is to show mercy, forgiveness, and to walk in faithfulness to the God of justice who will right every wrong. I guess the only question for us remaining is, who might you need to show mercy and forgiveness to today? Just as you have received mercy, are you ready to extend the mercies of the gospel to them too? Let's pray for that. Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness, that in Christ, through his death and resurrection, he took the judgment for us, Justice was performed. Well, Father, we are sorry for the times we have wronged you, for the times uh, we have sinned against you. We do pray, Lord, that you will uh, continue to, to remind us that we, are, uh, we have been forgiven, that, we, we, uh, that Christ has died for us, and we are undeserving of that. But in doing so, Lord, as we stand before you, remind us how we can be a people of mercy as well, extending that to others being a people, Lord, who are glorifying your name through our faithfulness. We pray for that in your son's name. Amen.